Hey everybody, how you doing today, Pastor Chip? Thanks for tuning in again. Today, <laughs> we're going to have a controversial topic. And if you saw the title, you're probably figuring that out. Um, and I always love, I love a spirited debate. And you know, you can sure get it in the Baptist churches. When you, especially when you bring up this topic of alcohol. And you know, it's even interesting that, you know, I've hung around the Methodist churches too. It's really crazy in how many people legitimately believe that Jesus did not turn the water into wine. It was just grape juice. Which, incidentally, in case you didn't know, Welch's grape juice was invented by a Methodist minister because he didn't want to be given alcohol to his congregation. So there you go, a little bit of trivia fact for you today. But um, what about alcohol? What about drinking and cultures. And if you've traveled the world any at all, uh, you know that Christianity is not exclusive to America. And neither is alcohol. So then you have to say to yourself, if people in Russia, and Germany, England, wherever, but Russia, Germany, England, France, Spain, Italy, Portugal, these countries have a very, very, very um, strong alcohol culture. Alcohol is as much a part of their culture as food is. You know, you sit down to eat a meal in Germany, you drink a beer. People don't drink anything else except maybe a coffee afterwards. You sit down in France to drink to eat a meal, it goes with a glass of wine. It might be red or it might be white. They've broken it down to the different types of wine that are best for the palate. And the same with Italy. And Russia... Everybody loves some good old vodka. And I had been stationed in Germany for a while and um, came home for Christmas one year. And my uncle, he was educated at the University of Berlin. He's a Methodist minister. And, I mean, he lived over there many years. And we were all around my grandmother's table. And he says, so Chip, have you tasted, the, had any of the German beer? And I said, I sure have. Uh, it's pretty good. And my grandmother said, what? You drank beer? And I said, yeah, Grandma. It's what they drink in Germany. There's not much of anything else. And she said, you're going to hell. You're going straight to hell. And I said, Grandma, there's a whole lot of Lutherans in Germany and Catholics. You know, the Lutheran church, Luther." split the church and created the Lutheranism. 
I said, you mean to tell me that all those Lutherans and the Catholics over there, they're all sinning because they drink beer with their meal? They're all going to hell. You're all going straight to hell. And sadly, as funny as that is, that's the way the Southern Baptists today look at everybody that drinks alcohol. You know, they... They excommunicate us. I found an article I was reading, and it, I mean, it's a great article. It goes in great depth about the alcoholic history of the United States and with the churches. And, and uh, <clears throat> actually, let's see here. In 1896, the Southern Baptist Con Convention officially denounced alcohol and asked that churches excommunicate anyone who sold or drank alcohol. It says prior to that, a lot of Baptist people, preachers, were paid in moonshine or whiskey, depending on where they were and how the churches paid them their salary. Um, and alcohol has, has been as much a part of our country as, you know, the rest of them. But the Baptist churches got on the temperance kick. They just wanted to outlaw it all together instead of instead of uh, tolerance or in moderation and speaking of which the verses of the Bible that talk about alcohol there's over 240 times that alcohol is mentioned in the Bible so I can't I can't go into them all and a lot of them are Old Testament which they can make the argument for the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And that's fine. And, you know, I've heard the argument, too, that Paul says don't do something that offends your neighbor. Well, of course, you know. You're not going to sit down and serve beer to a friend who's a recovering alcoholic. You know, so there's that argument, which, eh, you want to make that argument, that's a loose one to stand on. It's a weak one. Um, I'm saying that what it offends people. I mean, you go out to a restaurant and get a glass of wine, you're going to say you can't have a glass of wine because you don't know who in the restaurant might have an alcohol problem? Or you worry about people in your congregation will see you and, oh, Chip was at the was at the uh, Olive Garden, and he had a glass of wine. He's going to hell. He's going straight to hell. Or what about when you go to the grocery store? Do you do you go in the grocery store and buy a six-pack of beer and throw it in your buggy and throw your coat over it so nobody sees you? Quit living in fear. Own it. Own it. You know, but... But, you know, the verse that I picked out, verses that I picked out, really hit the main points of our alcohol argument. And that's what they used on this webpage, too. Um, so I'm going to read it to you, and, and a lot of you know it. And it's actually the first miracle that Jesus did when he turned the water into wine. So it says in John 2... Starting at the first verse, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior wine. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So the point, you know, you hear the arguments, you read the arguments that Jesus didn't, Jesus did, drinking wine's a sin. Honestly, you want to get your Bible and try and figure it out, you don't have a leg to stand on if you want to say alcohol is a sin, drinking alcohol, period. Now, drinking in excess is a sin. Getting drunk, acting a fool, embarrassing yourself, gambling your money, and uh, losing property, that's a sin. Drunkardness is a sin, but not drinking alcohol. Matter of fact... In early days, it was either alcohol or water. And people really didn't know about boiling water. But they did know that alcohol was kind of, was kind of um, sterile, sterilized, so to speak, because of the alcohol content in it. They knew that drinking alcohol was better for you and better for your stomach and the bacteria than drinking water out of a out of a boot or a mud hole or a pond that wasn't moving. So that's why alcohol and beer have served such medicinal purposes over the centuries. But back to the scripture, one key verse is 10. When the master of the feast says, every man, <coughs> excuse me, at the beginning, sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. Well, and the reason he says that is because if I'm going to put out, if I've got high dollar wine and I'm having a party and I really don't want everybody drinking my $500 bottles of wine, you can bust out the Boone's Farm and get everybody drunk and they won't know it. You see, he kept the good wine after they were drunk. He brought out the good wine and it didn't matter. He's like, after they were drunk, 
because they brought out the good wine first, and they got drunk on the, on the on expensive stuff, and then bring out the cheap stuff. They wouldn't know the difference. He brought out the good stuff, and didn't care if they knew the difference. But the caveat to the scripture and the and the commentary is this is the beginning of signs that Jesus did and manifested his glory. You know, I've often thought of this when people argue this to me. And I'm just going to tell you, going to make some people mad. You would rather diminish God's holiness, His sovereignty, His... Diminish His miracle and say that He really didn't turn the water into wine just to make yourself look good. Just to prove your point. I mean, that's what it boils down to. You're going to say, no, 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 that's not. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. You know, I'm going to put it even a little bit better. That's like saying he didn't die on the cross. If you don't believe in one miracle, you don't believe in any of them. If Jesus didn't have the ability to turn water into wine and do it, then what does the rest of it even matter? So you see, there's a lot of naysayers out there. And you know, if you've been in Christianity more than a month, you probably encountered it. I've heard it with my wife's death. I've heard it with baptism. You know, everybody wants to put a twist on things and say things that Jesus didn't say, didn't mean, or reinterpret it. You know, I think... Can you imagine? Can you imagine the advancement, the witness that Christ did for God and Christianity at that wedding feast? We don't know how many were there, but it was a wedding feast. The bride, the bridegroom, they're going to be talking for centuries about, you know, at mom and, at mom and dad's wedding or at grandma and grandpa's wedding that Jesus was there and turned the water into wine. That's why today that my family are Christians because they were there. They saw Jesus and they tasted the water he turned into wine. What about the servants? You don't know how many it was. Could have been 10. Could have been 20. 
all the servants that physically participated, that filled the pots up, that knew that they had put water in the pots. They carried the water. They put it in the pots. They probably broke their backs filling those pots. It wasn't no small task to fill up those pots. There were six water pots that held 20 or 30 gallons. I mean, think about it. Six 55-gallon drums, you're filling them about halfway up. And they probably just had clay pots to carry the water in. They didn't have water hoses back then. Think about it. They broke their backs to fill those pots and then watched Jesus pray over those pots. Probably, I don't know, how he did it. He could have spoke it. But he turned the water into wine and they dipped it out and it was the best wine that they had ever tasted. Didn't have to ferment, didn't have to sit there and in bottles and be rotated every year or so. It was instantly heavenly proof. Can you imagine those people telling their families? And I'm sure everybody took a pot of wine home. Taste this wine. Taste this wine. This is what Jesus made. I watched him make it. He made this out of water. Can you believe it? Taste this. This is the best we've ever had. And then the saddest part of it is, is every stick in the mud legalistic Baptist preacher and deacon and elder and whoever that wants to diminish the miracle of Christ. So think about that the next time if somebody talks about Jesus turning water into wine and tell them. Can you imagine what it was like being there. Can you imagine dipping that out? Can you imagine how many people went their own separate ways after the feast? How many generations did the family families pass down the story of the ones who were there? And here we are reading about it 2,000 years later. And yeah, it's about this time in Jesus' life that this would have happened. So, as you go about your weekend and you go to the store and you pick up that bottle of wine or that six-pack of beer, look around. If you see somebody staring at you, say, That's right. If it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. And you guys have a good, blessed weekend. Be safe. Remember to share a little love and a little grace to people you see. And this is Pastor Chip. I thank you for tuning in and listening to my rambling. God bless each and every one of you.